Our Father, your word tells us that there is joy in heaven, rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And how much joy there will be in our hearts when you tell us we stand before the majestic holiness, the glory of our risen Christ, of our Father, and the full presence of the Holy Spirit. And, and we who know we are sinners are declared to be blameless, and our hearts will be filled with great joy. Cause us to anticipate that day and to live consistent with that day and how we will feel on that day. Holy Spirit, enlighten our eyes to understand more and more the glory of Christ's inheritance in the saints. And cause us, O oh Lord, to have that, that joy in a full understanding of grace that is ours in Christ. And it is to that end that we pray and ask that you prepare our hearts through your word as we come to the table. And it's in your name, Jesus. Amen. We'll open up your Bibles, if you will, one uh, last time, most likely, uh, to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And we will attempt to conclude this morning by looking at the last couple of verses, uh, verses 13 and 14, uh, as we begin this last section, which actually begins back in verse 9 and goes to the end of the chapter. So Ecclesiastes 12, uh, verses 9 through 14, and we'll uh, seek to finish verses 13 and 14 this morning. Before we get there, uh, let me just briefly introduce it by saying what is obvious. A lot of the things are obvious when we make comments about our culture, and uh, this one will be as well, and namely it is this, that if there's something that we recognize we've lost in our culture and our times, not that this is always unique to us, but it is this, a sense of fear, a sense of honor, and a sense of respect. If there's one thing that we notice in this culture, particularly in children and youth, is that there is a distinct lack of fear, of sense of honor and respect to authority. In fact, authority is more often despised and mocked at and laughed at. The very concept, even with our own laws as they're changing, is that there would be an authority in the home, that there would be an honor in the home, that there would be within schools a sense of honor due to those who are in administration and are teachers, and we could go on down the line. We see that in terms of law enforcement. We see it in terms of government officials, but most sadly, we see it in the church as well. And in the church, it's more significant in that the loss of a sense of fear is because of a loss of a sense of the fear of God. God is, is reflected in many of the songs. I, I heard it said once, and I think it's a, an apt way to say it, is, is you turn on the radio and it's Jesus is my girlfriend music. Uh, we have our children who comment sometimes in listening to Christian music that you can hardly tell if they're talking about a high school romance or Christ because of the superficiality of them. And God is approachable to us in Christ, but he's become far too approachable to us in a sense that Christ almost is too familiar. God is too familiar. There's a sense of the lack of the holiness of God. That was not always true of the church, uh, but it is true particularly for us. And Solomon's going to give us a command that's a corrective to that as we come now to the end of this uh, chapter. God is indeed a, a God of love, he is a God of mercy, he is a God of compassion, he is a God of grace, he is also a God of judgment, he is a God who is infinite, he is a God who is holy, he is a God who is to be loved, he is a God to be honored, he is a God to be respected, he is a God to be feared. Let me read this chapter, or this section here, beginning in verse 9 down to verse 14, and then we'll look at it more closely. Verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered. He searched out, he arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write the words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion... When all has been heard is this, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And so Solomon concludes his letter, his book of Ecclesiastes. Well, we noted last week about the importance and the significance of 
the word of God, of the Spirit giving to us the word of God, which is to us not only a revelation of his glory, but also a means of his revealing his righteousness and how we are to live wisely in this world. Scripture is given to us by one shepherd, the one who knows us perfectly, the one who is omniscient, the one in whose image we're made, and it is given to us as the all-authoritative and sufficient word of God. And we noted as well that Solomon demonstrates that God has ministered to his church and ministers the word even to us through his church through gifts that he has given. But it is our responsibility not only in receiving these gifts but to improve upon them that they might be the most useful for the purposes of God uh, in this world. But then we noted as well, we ended in verse 12 with that brief warning that we are to be careful and discerning about the things that we give our time to Uh, The writing of many books, which may most likely here be a reference to those works that are outside of the canon of Scripture, what they had at that time. Those things that are uh, outside of revealed truth, let's be careful to give the, uh, the bulk of our effort and our energy to those things that are given to us by the Spirit of God. Uh, It could mean as well that there is a warning there about uh, endless learning without devotion, a corresponding devotion of the heart is also a dangerous position to be in. In either case, he now concludes the whole thing by reminding us what is the sum of it all? What is the sum of it all? What is the end of everything that God requires from us? And so we'll just title broadly this last section that God requires devotion in our diligence. He requires us to be diligent, to work hard with the things that he gives us, but at the heart of it all and what must drive it is our devotion to him. It is our worship. Now, I say devotion because I'm trying to stay with D's if you haven't noticed, Uh, but the idea here is worship, that God requires a heart that worships him in everything that we do. Worship must drive it all, and that's where he takes us in verse 13. This is the conclusion, the conclusion, the end of the matter, when all has been heard. And the idea of heard here, just as a footnote, is uh, the Shema. The idea of here in the Hebrew mindset isn't here for information. It's here to do. It's here to obey. It's to listen, to put into practice in our life. And he says, when all has been heard, when, when all has been understood and, it, and how it should work out in our life, this is the sum of it all. Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. So what is the essence of worship and devotion? It is fear and obedience. Fear and obedience. And these are essentially two sides of the same coin. They look at the requirement of man from two different angles, if you will. One is the internal affections that we are to have towards God, the internal response, the internal reality. That is fear. That is an affectional response to God, essentially. It works itself out. And then the fruit of that fear and the reality of the heart is that we obey his commandments, that we keep his commandments. That's the idea. Fear of God is the internal motivation. Obedience is the fruit and evidence of that heart. God's words and God's word to us is not merely to inform us, but it is to transform us. It is to, first of all, produce a proper response in the heart to him. And that proper response is manifest in the right ordering of our lives towards him and in light of his truth. So as I said there, then the dual commands to fear God and keep his commandments are two sides of the same coin. And then he notes at the end, because this applies to every person, this is essentially the sum of what God requires from everybody who bears his image. It's not merely of God's people, not merely of his covenant people, not merely of the church. Those are the only ones who can do it, but it is what God requires from every person. This applies to every person. If you have an ESV or some, I doubt you would have an ASV, but it's an older translation, but if you have the English Standard Version, they, they capture this phrase well in their translation, and it is this. They say, this is the whole duty of man. This is the whole duty of man. And more literally, it'd be something like, this is all man or all of man or something like that. But the idea here is that it's the whole duty of man. Obedient fear of God or fearful obedience to God is the sum requirement of all of humanity. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 33. He says, let the earth fear the Lord and let all the inhabitants of the world stand in all of him. That's what all men should do. And one day, of course, that is what all will do. But that is the requirement of God for all humanity, is that he is to be feared. 
As a matter of fact, the quintessential evidence of this is seen in the perfect man, the perfect God-man himself. And these I'll just note. The very mark of Christ, who even though he was without sin, that he was the Son of God incarnate, it says this of him who was marked by the Spirit without measure. In Isaiah 11, just listen. He says that he had the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit, listen, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, that he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That is a mark of what it means to be human and to live a rightly ordered life before God, is that he would be lived before with fear and obedience. This is pointing us to ultimately what will define is the fear of God. Now, of course, with the Messiah, there is a uniqueness to this in that in his perfect humanity, he feared God, and in his true deity, he is the one to be feared by others. He is, the one, he is both the one who offered to God fear as the perfect man, and he is the one who is the object of fear of God's people in his divinity. Let me just note that. In Ephesians 5.21, it says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Revelation 15, 4, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. They're even having reference to the risen Christ in his glory. So the fear of God and the command that he gives us here, the fear of God and keeping his commandments is the very essence of godliness. It's the very essence of spirituality. It is the foundation of all of the spiritual life as Solomon has already laid out, particularly in the book of Proverbs. Let me just give you a few ways foundational ways that he speaks of it. In Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. There is no knowledge of God. There is no true knowledge of God without the fear of God. He says, fools despise wisdom instruction. So the very heart of wisdom, the very heart of the knowledge of God is to fear him. Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In Proverbs 19, 23, it's the fear of the Lord that leads to life. He says, the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may... Sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Again, it is the essence of knowing him. It is the essence of a true knowledge of him. It is a summary description of the one who is blessed by God. Again, just listen. I'm going I'm to bounce around more than usual. So and, and a lot of these, just, just listen because I want to give you a feel of what Scripture says about it. And we're not going to go through every verse that mentions fear. But let me make this point. It is the very essence of the one who is blessed by God. Psalm 112 says this. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. He talks about the fruit of that blessedness. He says in verse 4, light will arise for the, uh, in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. And he goes on. He says something similar in other psalms as well, Psalms 128. The point is, is that it is the very essence of knowing God. It is the very essence of living in his blessing. It is the very essence of what it means to be human. Conversely, not surprisingly, the very essence of not knowing God, of having no knowledge of God, of being darkened in our understanding, of being spiritually ignorant, of being spiritually foolish, is to not fear God, is to have no fear of Him. As a matter of fact, as you well remember, the summary statement of the fallenness and the sinful condition of man in Romans chapter 3 is this. Do you remember? There is no fear of God before their eyes. If you say, what marks an unregenerate person? They do not fear God. They do not fear God, and therefore they are wanton and given to sin. So while the fear and obedience are two commands, the fear of God, however, is the foundational reality. Again, of which obedience is the fruit of that reality. So it is important for us to ask, then, what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear God? How do we know if we fear God? And how does that fit with God's redemption and God's forgiveness? Well, let's consider that briefly. First of all, let's just consider the meaning of the term. The term that is translated as fear 
uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, has the idea of fear, actual concern of danger or harm or terror about some kind of circumstance or some kind of threat to the soul or our personhood or desires or whatever. Just one example of that would be when Jacob was coming back into the land and he knew that Esau, his brother, was approaching and he knew that he had treated Esau wrong and he was concerned about his brother's reaction. He says this in his prayer to God, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children and so forth. There's that kind of fear and, and that could be illustrated in a hundred different ways. But the idea is that it's fear of some kind of future reprisal or future consequence or something that might happen to a person that is adverse. There is a a fear that comes from being in the presence of a supernatural being, some sense of of the presence of an otherworldly figure. Just a few examples of that would be the angelic presence at the announcement of Christ. Again, many examples. I'm just making a general point here. But let me remind you of this. In Luke 1.13, Zacharias, he was in the presence of an angel, and the angel had to say to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. Why? Because when he realized that he was not alone as he entered into the Holy of Holies, fulfilling his duty as high priest that year, that he was struck with fear of being in the presence of a being from another realm. In Luke 1.30, the same thing, the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Why? Because in realizing that there was an angel at her bed, it filled her with fear. It was a surprise. There was a sense of needing to be comforted. In Luke 2.10, the same with the shepherds as well. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news. And so fear is related to some sense of harm, some sense of danger to one's person. It can be related to a fear of just being in the presence of something that is greater than us, a a supernatural being, that kind of thing. There's, There's also fear, however, in another sense, and that is the idea of reverence and honor. And that's that's getting closer to the way that Solomon means it, but we'll nuance that. But there is fear that is used in the sense of reverence, in the sense of respect to someone who is in authority or in a greater position. Again, let me give you just a few examples. In Leviticus 19, children are to fear their parents, to revere them. Every one of you shall reverence or fear his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. We are to have fear and honor, reverence, uh, as it were, towards those in civil authority or government authority or people of position. Romans 13, 7, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We are to fear those who have authority over us in life. In 1 Peter 2.8, he says that we servants or slaves are to fear their masters. We could transfer that over and to say anybody who has an authority over us in a life, if we carry that principle over. 1 Peter 2.18 says this, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. The term there is fear, with all fear. We are to fear God's leaders and those who are in charge, Joshua 4.14. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they revered him or feared him just as they had revered or feared Moses all the days of his life. And we see a way that Solomon connects that attitude, that, that basic sense of reverence, that basic sense of respect to God. He says in Proverbs 24, 21, My son, fear the Lord and the king. Fear the Lord and the king. Now, both of these ideas, the idea of terror, the idea of concern about a consequence or harm to oneself, and the idea of reverence and the idea of respect are both included in this idea, in this command to fear God, to fear God. To be in the presence of God is to be in the presence of a superior, and to be in the presence of God as one who has sin is to realize that there are consequences Let me give you then next and just a few reasons and motivations for this fear of God. What is it that drives this fear of God within man or should drive it? Well, as I mentioned, the reality of the fact that we are fallen creatures, that we are not what we should be, that we are beings who have the reality of sin is in part a reason to fear God. The very first act of Adam and Eve after their sin, do you remember what it was? You remember 
They hid themselves. Adam hid himself because he, he heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden and he hid himself and he said, because I was afraid. Why was he afraid? Well, we understand because sin had entered into the world. He now had a condition, a spiritual reality, a spiritual experience in his heart that he did not have before the fall. There was sin. There was guilt. There was having stepped and acted outside of the will of God. And so there was fear within him. There was fear. And that is the natural result of sin, as you will remember. Jesus, his own words, captures the very heart of that in John chapter 3, that sin seeks to hide itself. That's one of the marks of sin, is that it seeks to hide itself from God. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And so it was with Adam. And it's not only with Adam in that moment. That is the, that is the sense that even God's people sometimes feel when they, when they have a full experience of the presence of God. You'll remember Peter in the boat after Jesus had performed a miracle with fish in Luke 5.8. Uh, Peter realizing the, in, in a greater degree than he had anyway who it was who was in the boat with him in the presence of God. He said, depart from me, Lord. Do you remember? I am a sinful man. And then that often repeated, because it is so foundational, experience in the words of Isaiah the prophet, one of the most righteous men in all of Israel, when he had seen the vision of God and the glory of the Lord filling the temple and the train of his robe and the, the angels around, holy, 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 he said the first thing out of his mouth, the first thing that he became acutely aware of internally was his sin. And he says, woe to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. So it is, it is in one sense the natural response of a sinner uh, in the presence of God. As a matter of fact, God, God honors and even tries to instill in some measure that kind of fear in his people for the purpose of obedience. You'll remember as God delivered his people out of the land of Egypt and he brought them to that mountain, Mount Sinai, he intentionally displayed the glory and his majestic holiness in such a way that he would instill fear in his people so that they would not sin. Listen, this is after there was the thundering, the lightning, the command not to come near or lest you die to touch the mountain and so forth. And the hearing of the Ten Commandments. It says this, Exodus does, and all the people, in verse 18, 2018, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning and the flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled, they stood at a distance, and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. God wanted to, in a very unique, in a very particular way, to manifest his presence and his holiness particularly, so that his people would remember that, it would stick in their mind, and they would not sin against him. And so there is a, a certain fear that comes just from a sinner being in the presence of God. And it wasn't only at Mount Sinai. God also sought to instill this fear at the beginning of the worship, if you remember the tabernacle in Leviticus 2. Adab and Abai, they came and they brought strange fire before the Lord. And fire came out and consumed them. Why? To put fear in the people that he is a holy God and he will be treated as holy. And, and we can easily sometimes say, well, that's the, that's the fearful, wrathful God of the Old Testament, the mean God who kills people and destroys them and wipes out nations. But now we have a gracious, kind, loving God, Jesus, and that would never happen. What did he do at the beginning of the church? You remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? God wanted to make a statement as the church was growing, as it was gaining the attention of the surrounding culture. And they came and they brought a, an offering and they had lied to uh, Peter and they had essentially then was lying to the Holy Spirit because he was his representative. They had lied before God. And God struck them both dead. And what was the result of that? It says in Acts 5.11, And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Do you think those who knew that God had struck them dead would think twice before they would come in such a hypocritical way? God wanted to instill fear of them about sin. So it's the same God in the Old Testament 
in the New Testament, the same God revealed at Sinai and the tabernacle is the same God revealed in Christ ruling from heaven. Now, just as a footnote here, in this light, this is lost in much of the evangelical church who seems reticent to talk about the reality of sin, the reality of judgment, the reality of wickedness. If you listen to most music or preachers or people who represent Christianity in the world, we are a people who are full of failures. We are a people who are full of brokenness. We are a people who are full of mistakes. How often are we a people who are full of sin, who act in rebellion against our holy creator and are deserving of his just response? How, how weak is the idea of my failures and brokenness to lead me to repentance when I don't see that my sin is an evil, it is a moral rebellion against God that can only be atoned for by the suffering of Christ? A low view of sin comes from a low view of God which produces a weak view of Christ and his word. But that's not what Solomon is calling us to. It's not what scripture calls us to. God is holy. Sin is sin. Sin deserves judgment. All of scripture is revealed with that. And that should cause us to hope all the more for a savior. We'll get there. So one is we fear God merely because he is holy and we are sinners. We fear God then in response to his power and majesty simply because he is God. He is an infinite being. He is infinite, transcendent in his glory and his holiness and his power and his, his majesty as scripture speaks of it. This is the way that the people of Israel responded after God had given a small glimpse of that glory and the judgments that he put on Egypt and ultimately in killing the firstborn of which they were spared through sacrifice, not because they were innocent, but because they were just as guilty as Israel, I mean Egypt, but because God had shown them covenant faithfulness and kindness and gave them a sacrifice. But it says this in uh, verse 31 of chapter 14 of Exodus, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. In verse 11 of chapter 15, it caused them to cry out, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? In other words, the display of God's power, a display of his glory, caused in them to have fear. And it was a fear that reverberated throughout the land and even went before them into the land of Canaan. And you'll remember as they were standing outside Jericho that the prostitute Rahab, who spared the spies who came in, she protected them because she knew that God had given them this land and that surely the God who had delivered them from Egypt would be a God who would deliver the enemies of his people into their hands as they entered into the land of that he had given to them. And so she said this, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away because before you. It's the natural response even of the redeemed of being in God's presence merely because of his greatness. You'll remember the Mount of Transfiguration. And again, don't turn there. These are just to give you a sense. In Matthew 17, the disciples, Peter, James, and John were up on the mountain they had seen Christ transformed before their eyes. He shone with a brightness and a glory that they had not seen before. And there was Moses and Elijah who were with him on the mountain. Peter wanted to say, let us make you know, three tabernacles. That was a mistake. God the Father comes in the presence of a cloud. He overshadows them. He speaks. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, he is unique. You do not put him on the same level, even with Moses and Elijah. And what was their response? When the disciples heard this voice from heaven, the voice of the Father, they said this. It says this. They fell face down on the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. They were terrified. That is when we come into the sense and the presence of God. There is that sense of dread of being in the one so awesome and powerful. I can't help. I'll just mention this. I was in a class one time that had people who led uh, worship and music in various places. And, and one of them, uh, a little outside of our camp, but, but he was talking about uh, how uh, it was important to him to create the experience of worship. And that is a big part 
of the evangelical church. We create an experience. We have darkened rooms. We have lights that shine and flash around. We have instruments that are very loud. Some, in this person's brother's case, it was even wanting to use smoke and other kind of effects. And uh, I asked why, you know, what was the point? It was part of the conversation. And, and it was because to create this experience, this sense of God. You see a problem with that? The sense of God and the sense of God's glory and his presence isn't through light and smokes and loud music. That can create an emotion, but it doesn't create this that causes one to fall on their face and need the voice of the Lord to say, don't be afraid. But that is what it means to fear God. And it's not only just men. Angels fear God. They tremble before him in the greatness of his presence and of his majesty. Angels who C.S. Lewis once said uh, famously and rightly, even of us in our glorified state as human beings who would be shining with a glory that we can only imagine here, we would be tempted to see a resurrected, if we could see a resurrected saint now, we'd be tempted to worship them. We know that we as human beings, if we were in the presence of an angel, there would be a temptation to worship them because of the greatness of their glory compared to us. You say, that's not the case. Isn't that what happened with John? Twice, when the angel was showing him around in Revelation, he fell down and the angel had to say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't worship me. I am a servant like you are a servant. So angels are glorious in their being. There's always been a a tendency to want to ascribe to them some measure of worship. That's another discussion. But listen to this in Psalm 89. Listen to this of angels, these holy, majestic creations of God. It says in Psalm 89, verse 6, "Who Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord, Yahweh? Who among the sons of the mighty, this reference to angels, is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared, listen, in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. That means even angels that would cause us, if one were to appear, to be tempted to want to worship them, even as the apostles wanted to worship, in a sense, the glorified Moses and Elijah, even as John wanted to worship the angel that showed him around, we would be tempted with that same tendency. And yet, in the presence of God, even these glorious beings tremble in the full presence of his majesty. That was part of what Isaiah got a picture of when the angels were flying around. Remember, with two wings, they covered their feet. With two, they covered their eyes. And with two, they flew. Why? Because they were in the presence of God. There was a a fear. There was a sense of the reality of his greatness and our smallness. And it's interesting on that note. This is why the phrase, do not fear, is one of the most repeated phrases in all of Scripture. As a matter of fact... After Genesis 3.10, when Adam was hiding because he was afraid, the very next use of that term in the Old Testament that translated fear comes in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, and it is with these words of God to Abraham in the midst of reaffirming this covenant and advancing it, is to say this, do not fear, do not fear. And that it was God's word to Abraham, it was a reflection of his covenant to him. He says, I am a shield to you and your reward is very great. But now it's interesting, in light of those which we can readily understand that that God is great, he is infinite, he's transcendent, he's majestic, he is other than we are, he is in every way to be feared and adored. It's interesting to know, but it, it makes sense. That God is to be feared not only in his judgment, not only in his holiness, not only in the greatness of his being, but God is to be feared for another reason. We are to fear him because of his grace, because of his forgiveness. The forgiveness of God should actually produce in us a sense of fear. Let me just give you a couple of points on that. Psalm 130 says this. Psalm 134 It says in verse 3, O Lord, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? That is the sense of the awareness of the holiness of God. But then he says this, but there is forgiveness with you. Why? That you may be feared, that you may be feared. 
Forgiveness of sin before a holy God should produce in the people fear of God, a sense of the greatness of grace. And again, lest we think these are only Old Testament concepts, let me take you to one other place. We have such a tendency to try to separate the revelation of God's majesty in the Old Testament and the revelation of his glory in Christ. But listen to this. First uh, Peter chapter 1. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in what? In fear during the time of your stay on earth. Why? He says this, verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, from your forefathers, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. When we think of the the cost of our redemption, the glory of the one who was on the cross bearing the consequences for our sin for us, when we realize the preciousness of the blood that was the price for our redemption, it should cause us to fear, to fear God, to have that sense of humbled reverence before him. Now, what is the character then of this fear? What is the character of this fear? Well, sometimes it's talked about in this way, and I'm going to borrow these words, but there's a slavish and a, well, let's just say it's the fear of a slave and the fear of a son. The fear of a slave and the fear of a child. One is the fear of punishment and the other is the fear of adoration and respect. Now, slavish fear is the kind of fear that's related to that, that sense of the term in which we are concerned about negative consequences that will come to us, some kind of punishment or harm or something along those lines. And there is a sense in which this kind of fear can be used of God to begin the turn towards Christ, to begin the turn of repentance toward Christ. John the Baptist in some way pictures this in Matthew 3, 7, when speaking to the leaders who had come, he said, who told you or who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? There is a there is a sense in which this is appealed to even during the time of judgment, of the judgment of God upon the earth. He says this, Revelation 14, I saw an angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water and so forth. There is a sense in which this fear of consequences, this fear of judgment, can be the beginning of the turning to God, but it's not the normative or the essence of the godly fear that leads to maturity of faith and the likeness of Christ. That's the fear of sons, and that's really defined in this way, a fear of love and reverence for God that fears doing anything that would displease him, that desires to for him to be delighted in approving of our actions. It's the kind of fear that can only come with the work of regeneration. As a matter of fact, one made this comment. Sinful fear of God drives people away from him. That's the one who sins and wants to hide and moves away from God. But the fear of God, but godly fear of God, attracts them to him. Because why we are ashamed and aware of our sin, why we are naturally timid to enter into the presence of such a great king, we also see in him the fountain of all grace and all mercy and all compassion who invites us. That's a godly fear. And it's the kind of fear that marked the church in Acts chapter 9, 31. Interestingly, I'll just mention it. It speaks of the church there, and it says they were continuing on in the fear of the Lord and the comforts of the Lord and of the gospel. Fear and comfort. In godly fear, both are present. So the godly fear that Solomon calls us to here is the response of a regenerate heart at the true knowledge of God that sees and delights in the glory of his majesty delights in the beauty of his holiness, delights in the wonder of his love and redemption, and therefore reverences him. And it's the kind of reverence that produces the desire to please him. One put it this way, an old author, but reverence for God engenders in God's children a careful guarding against dispelling God or displeasing God by disobedience and the commission of sins and a being active to please him in all things. In other words, it doesn't want to sin and it wants to please him. That's the fear of God. 
That's the fear of God. I want to make a footnote here. How do we, this might be going off in the minds of some of you, how do we uh, put that with that, that well-known statement of John the Apostle in his epistle, 1 John chapter 4, 18? You know the verse. He says this, there is no fear in love. Is that contradicting what Solomon says? Well, he goes on to explain it. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So which is it? Do we fear God or do we love him? Well, it's important to understand that John is, not, is speaking of the fear of judgment for sin, not fear of the believer to sin against God. Do you see the difference? We're not fearing eternal condemnation because of our sin, but there is a fear in believers to sin against the God who has saved us from that condemnation. The context of that statement is Christ is the propitiation for our sin because of the love of God. And so this means, however, that there is a certain tension in the heart of believers when it comes to the fear of God. There is a certain tension in which we fear that we have, when we're thinking rightly anyway, we, we have a kind of sense of our sin and how that causes us a bit of trepidation of coming into the presence of God. And yet, as mentioned, there is this invitation to come into the presence of God, the sense of his glory. Where else could we go? We sing it. You have the words of life in him alone is grace. So there is, in some sense, you could say a, a kind of attention at times. One put it this way, until the consummation, I suspect there will always be some element of terror in our reverence for God. Thus, there will always be some tension between the fear of the Lord and our experience of sonship. But as for the relation between reverence and intimacy, we need to remind ourselves that our new friend Jesus, our heavenly Father, and the Spirit who dwells intimately within us are God, indeed the majestic, sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. Both are true. Both are true. And he picks up on a point there that's important for me just to at least mention. This fear of God, this godly fear of God, this fear of sonship, this reverent fear of God is for a believer essential to our intimacy with God, the intimacy of the covenant that we have with God, the covenant relationship. The writer of Psalms 25 puts it this way. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. You could say the the counsel of the Lord, the intimacy of the Lord, the secret of the Lord, that which the Lord communicates to his own children, the one who is a true child of the covenant. He says this, the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. There's a way, and I'll just mention this, where that idea is picked up in John chapter 14 in the presence of Christ where he says this, the one who keeps his commandments is the one who loves him. And he says, and I will disclose myself to him. And he says in that same context, and then I and the Father will come and make our abode a unique experience of our presence within a believer. And that comes out of a love for him and a fear of him. And that that introduces, introduces us to another aspect then of this fear. And that is that along with the love of God, I'll mention this again in a sec, it produces then Obedience. Obedience. Keep his commandments. We are to fear God and keep his commandments. The fear of God produces obedience to his word, submission to his authority, delighted trust in his ways. As a matter of fact, that is what throughout the law was given as the proper motivation. I won't go through all the text, but I'll give you one that captures it well. The essence of what God requires of his people. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Now Israel... What does the Lord your God require from you? What does he require of you? What is it? With all the law, with all the temple, with all the redemption, with all the promises, with all of the covenant, with all of everything, what does God really require of you as his people, as his covenant people, as those he's entered into relationship with? He says this, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, And to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. So the fear of God here, if you caught that, strikingly is connected, is inextricable from, is of the essence of covenant faithfulness. The fear of God is connected to the love of God. 
Where there is a love for God, there is a fear for God. Where there is a true fear for God, there is an understanding of his love and a love to him. It's the essence of covenant redemption. One said this, that his children know that God is not merely to be obeyed, but he is to be loved and to be enjoyed. So the fear of God is not opposed to loving God. It's part of it. Again, it's the faith that sees both his terrible majesty and his gracious love in redemption. This is what it means then to fear God. And it means something more then. When he says then to fear God and to keep his commandments, it means more than simply doing what God says. It means more than simply doing what his word says. And again, I want to emphasize this. It is the fruit of relationship, of a true knowledge of God. It involves trust in God's promises. It involves reliance on God and his faithfulness to undergird and support us in obedience and in life. As a matter of fact, let me give you just one illustration in, in Genesis chapter 22. I think this captures as well as anything the very heart of this, of what it means to fear God. You'll remember in Genesis chapter 22, this is the account of Abraham and Isaac. So God having already confirmed his covenant with Abraham, came to him one day and says to him, Abraham, uh, I have a command for you. I have something I want you to do. And I want you to offer up your son, Isaac. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. What did Abraham do? He didn't get into a dispute He didn't argue. It says he rose early the next morning with Isaac, taking the things that would be necessary for the sacrifice, namely wood, but not an animal. And he walked with his son up to the mountain that God had appointed him. And as they walked along, knowing that it was for a sacrifice, you remember that Isaac asked his father, where is the sacrifice? I see fire. I see a knife, but I don't see an animal. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together, and you know the story. They came to the place which God had told him. Abraham built an altar there. He bound his son Isaac on this altar. He raised the knife to offer him as a sacrifice to God, the son of promise, the son that he loved. But that's what God said to do, and so he was going to do it. And so as he raised the knife, then he was stopped. And an angel of the Lord called from him, the angel of the Lord, and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. Spare his life, the life that I commanded you to take, the life that I know now that you would take. And he says this, listen, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. How did he fear God? He trusted God. How did he fear God? He was in complete submission to his will and to his word. How did he fear God? He believed that what God had promised, God would fulfill, even when what he had told him to do in this instant contradicted everything that would humanly make sense. And you say, how do you know that? Because we have a testimony of it in Romans chapter 4. Speaking of this very event, connecting it to the reality of faith, Paul says this, speaking of Abraham's faith as a demonstration that God's people are always saved through faith because Abraham was saved by faith before the law came. If we go to Hebrews 11, we know even Abel and Enoch and the rest were saved by faith. It's always been the way that people are saved is by receiving the promise of God, believing in the promise of God. And it says this of that kind of faith that fears God. It says this in Romans chapter 4. 
that he believed God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist in hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken so shall your descendants be without becoming weak in faith he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's room yet with respect to the promise of God he did not waver in unbelief he grew strong in faith giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God has promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was that kind of faith that was credited to him as righteousness. When God said, now I know, he didn't learn, it wasn't for God. As a matter of fact, what he quotes here actually predated that. In Genesis 15, 6, he believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He uses that as the foundation for the very same faith that was proved in the offering up of Isaac. And that account tells us it was because he feared God. He feared God. He believed his word. He knew that he was without question to yield to what he had told him to do. But he also knew that that was the safest thing to do. Because without question, no matter how much it didn't make sense to him, his fear of God was an assurance to him that God would fulfill his promise exactly as he said. That's what it means to fear God, is to trust him to yield to him, to submit to him, to keep his commandments because he is God. Let me give just a few more. What does it mean then to fear God? What does it mean? It means then to hate evil. If we fear God, if we have this sense of God, this sense of his holiness, this sense of his grace, then we will fear evil. We will hate evil, in fact. Listen to Solomon in Proverbs 8. He says this in uh, Proverbs 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Why? Because it's contrary to God. Because it's contrary to the love of God. It's contrary to the grace of God. It's contrary to the holiness of God. It's contrary to the mercy of God. It's contrary to the faithfulness of God. To hate evil and everything that flows out of it. He says this in chapter 16, verse 6. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. How do we know if we fear the Lord or the measure of our fear of the Lord is by how much we hate sin? Our love is measured in part by our, the, the things that we hate. And the things that we hate indicate to us the measure of what we love. And the things that we love. That's how it works. And so the fear of God is measured by hatred of sin. So we can say, how much do I fear God? Well, it matters how much I hate sin. That will give me an indicator. How much are you fighting sin in life? How much, and you say, well, no, I don't hate it as I should. Well, none of us do, and that itself grieves us, which is a very fact and evidence that we do fear God. Because we realize we don't fear him as we want. How do we know that we love God when we realize we don't love him as we want, as our hearts desire? So that shouldn't be then a discouragement. It should be a discouragement because in the sense that we're not giving to God what our heart truly desires, but an encouragement in the sense that it means God's doing something in us, that grace is present, that his work is present. To fear God then is to trust him. It's of the essence of saving faith. To fear God then is to hate evil and everything that goes against him. And the fear of God, that kind of fear of God, the very heart of what God promised would be the, the mark of all of those who know him. It was the heart of the new covenant. And it is this fear of God that keeps us saved, actually. It's the fear of God and the promise of this fear that assures us that we who belong to him will never leave him. Listen to the promise of the new covenant. He says this in Jeremiah 32. He says, um, verse 38, They shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way and they, that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will not, that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And listen, I will put the fear of me in them, in their hearts, so that they will not turn away from me. 
And so it is the very fear of God that assures that those who belong to him, that those who are true participants in his covenant, who are true participants in the life of the Messiah from our vantage point and of Christ, will never leave him. Will never leave him. Because the fear of God is in them. That is, just as a footnote, why warning passages are in Scripture. They're for believers. They're for believers, ultimately, because a believer reads the warning. An unbeliever doesn't read them with much concern. But a believer, and particularly a believer who's struggling in any kind of sin, reads those warning passages and terror is struck into their soul. Could that be me? And it brings about repentance. It brings about a turning to the Lord. It brings about a searching of the heart. It brings about a clinging and a desperate holding and cry to understand the grace of God, to know that the grace of Christ belongs to me, even to me. There are two in large part, to keep believers who have the fear of God in them from ever leaving God. And let me tell you, if you are a believer and you have even the smallest inkling of your heart, you know this, if it weren't for that truth, you would leave God. You would go the ways of the world again in the ways of sin. You are not in the world. If you are in Christ and kept in Christ, it is because God keeps you. And it is the cry of our believer's heart then to know more and more of the fear of God. David prayed, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. So the fear of God and keeping his commandments is at the very essence of what it means to know him. We'll have to get to verse 14 next week. It's at the very heart of what it means to know him. To fear God is to say that I have come by the work of the Spirit in my life in some measure to see God not as distant or impersonable, but to see him as the infinite and glorious creator of all things who is holy. I have come in a measure of seeing the person and the glory of God to see my sin so that I cannot think of God without also an awareness of my sin before God. But it also means that the fear of God says that I see that there has been an atonement made for my sin. And that increases my fear of him. It doesn't diminish it. And I see that because of this sight of God that I don't want to sin, that I hate sin. I see because of this that God has kept me and preserved me, not by my own doing, but by his grace and his faithfulness to his promise, by the ministry of his spirit within me. And that again causes me to only fear him more and to love him more. And it is that kind of life and that kind of growing sense of the fear of God and the love of God that produces in us obedience to be faithful to this great God, to keep his commandments, to walk in his ways, and to serve him. And as we come to the table this morning, we'll expand on that next week, but as we come to the table this morning, this is God's own testimony of his faithfulness to us. There's many things that could be said about it, but one is this. It is a testimony of the grace that he has shown in our life to move us from the kingdom of darkness or the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. It is a testimony of his covenant promises that says the one who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood. Now, when he says that in John 6, he's not talking about the table, but he is illustrating what it means is the one who comes to me and the one who believes in me is the one who shares in the reality of my redemptive accomplishments and shares in the reality of salvation and is brought as a son into the kingdom of my father and into my kingdom. And this table is a visible reminder of saying it is a symbol, it is an emblem, it is a picture, it is a semblance to you of my grace, that you are in my body, that you participate in my covenant, that you are indwelled by my spirit, that you have my promises that are yes and amen to you, and you can rest in them, secure in them. It's meant to be a symbol of hope, a symbol of assurance, a symbol of reminder of who we are in him. So, As we come to the table, receive it as such. And remember that as we come, we do so in the fear of God. And we remember that by making that statement, by making the statement that I am coming to this table as a reminder and assurance of my covenant relationship with God, we are also saying then that I am coming to this table 
as a reminder of my commitment to this God whom I fear and whom I want to serve. And so we, none of us come here without sin, none of us. But everyone who knows Christ comes with us with this determination, I want to confess my sin. I want to grow in holiness. I want to find fresh encouragements from the grace of God to live for him and to honor him. And so with that in mind, take a few moments to pray silently. The men will hand out the plates and then we will remember the Lord's Supper together. Our Father, we do ask that you would, by your grace, bring us to this table with hearts full of joy, as we sang earlier, reminded, being reminded that the covenant has been secured for us who have trusted in Christ, that indeed those words, those last words of you, our Lord, that it is finished are words of hope to us that a complete atonement has been made, a complete provision for our reconciliation to you has been provided. And we remember as well that while we're on our pilgrimage in this earth, while we are sojourners waiting to come to our heavenly home, that we need fresh encouragements from you of your grace. We need fresh reminders from you of your holiness and the cost of our redemption that we would not take it lightly. We need the fellowship of the saints and of the body of Christ to help us along the way. We pray that as we take this table, you would work these things in us for your glory, amen. So the men are gonna pass these out and then we'll take these elements together.
God, knowing that we are a forgetful people, gives us lots of reminders in his word. If you'll notice as you read through scripture, he repeats himself all the time <laughs> because he knows we need to hear it over and over again. And in some sense, that is why he gave us these symbols to remind us repeatedly of the new covenant in his blood, of the body that was given for us and of the body that we now constitute and dwelled by the spirit, the body of Christ, the people redeemed by him. A reminder to us of his return and the promise of the kingdom And we have a hope that is certain and sure that Christ will return. He who left, who ascended to the Father bodily in front of the eyes of the disciples, who is there bodily with the Father right now at his right hand making intercession for us, is the same one who will physically return for us and will conform us to the body of his glory. And these elements remind us of that and so much else. And so Jesus said with his disciples, as he anticipated his coming death and his resurrection, he said while they were eating, them thinking it was a simple Passover meal, remembering God's redemption from Egypt, reminded them and instituted for them something new, and it is what we share in this morning. And he said to them when he had taken a cup and he had given thanks, And he passed it around the table to the disciples. And he said to them, drink from it, all of you. And then he explained it. And he said, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And he did that after he had already told them with the bread as he had passed it around and they'd taken it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. I read that out of order, but I think we can do this that we do solemnly remember as we take the symbol of this bread that it is representative both of the body that he offered up for us and it is representative that we are together the body of Christ on earth who are redeemed in him, united to him by faith and by his spirit. So let's together eat. And as we already read, when we drink the red juice in this cup, we are reminded that it is a representative, it is representative, it is a symbol, it is a picture. Blood of the covenant, the blood is of the death of Christ, the atoning death of Christ. It is of his violent death. It is of his death that is the provision for the condemnation of our sin. We'll look at this next week. And when we drink, we remember that the cost of our redemption, the cost of this covenant was both great and that causes us to fear But it also reminds us that it is certain and sure, which causes us to hope. And so together, we drink to his glory out of gratitude and remember of this covenant. Let's drink together. Surprisingly, I am just a couple minutes over. So let me read if I may, uh, from 1 Corinthians 15 as a benediction for us. He says this, as we anticipate the Lord's return, he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. May the Lord bless these words to our heart and to our lives until we meet again next week. God bless.